0: Amen. Thanks for doing that. Okay, let me mention two just pastoral words real quick before we get into just a topic that I am really, really excited and passionate about. Uh, just two kind of uh, words of encouragement to you. One, uh, several times when we've taught these different theology classes in the past, as people are finally, some, some of you might even feel this way for the first time in your life, digging into some subjects that maybe you haven't really uh, dug down into before, you might find yourself feeling a little spiritually attacked. And that's because there is a real enemy and he really does hate you and he hates you knowing God's word. And so just know that that is normal. I've actually had several students come up uh, when we've done classes like this and say, I just feel like I'm fighting more in my marriage and I feel like I'm having a lot of doubts about my walk with Christ and all these kind of things. Sometimes that happens as you seek to equip yourself more for the kingdom. You become more of a target. So I just want to mention that in case that's happening to you. Welcome. That's normal. Uh, So the other thing I want to mention is as we continue learning more and more about the Bible, more and more about theology, one of the things you'll always have to be on guard for is pride. Okay, knowledge puffs up. So the knowledge is not what's bad. What happens is it's easy to start seeing what the Bible says clearly and start looking at other people and start looking at other Christians with kind of a condescending attitude. And so we want to make sure we don't do that. Our hope is that if we see something clearer than other people because of God's word, that it incites us to encourage them and teach them and take them under our wing and disciple people. So we want to make sure that we don't ever walk in a spirit of pride uh, as we know this. As I'm saying these things to you, I'm preaching to myself. I mean, I I really struggle with both of these things, and so uh, I just wanted to mention that just to kind of start us off today, so... Fair? Does everything sound good? Okay. Let's get into the doctrine of justification. This is something I'm extremely passionate about. Here's why. I think the gospel is the message of the kingdom of God, which we've already talked about. It's the message that because Christ is king and God is reestablishing his kingdom, everything eventually is going to be okay through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But the reason I'm so passionate about this doctrine is because this is a doctrine that if you get it right, It will set you free from your works-based performance, from trying to earn God's favor, from feeling like God is disappointed or mad at you when you realize that Christ, that Jesus paid it all, nothing but the blood, that when you realize that God has done everything on your behalf in Christ and your job is simply as a passive recipient of his mercy and love and grace, it just sets you free, all right? It sets you free. Justification is the doormat to the kingdom, The kingdom of God is the gospel, but how do I get to be a part of this kingdom? How can I personally be made right before a holy God who has wrath towards sin? That's the question we're going to try to answer today in the doctrine of justification. So we're going to approach this a little bit differently than you typically would in a New Testament theology class because we're going to start with a little church history. But first, let me give you a definition. This is Wayne Grudem's definition, which is uh, not not a bad definition. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and declares us to be righteous in his sight. All right, let me read it again. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and declares us to be righteous in his sight. So the question we're trying to answer this morning is simply this. How does one go from being under God's wrath from being seen as innocent and beautiful and forgiven in God's sight. That's what we're trying to figure out. It's the existential human question. How can I maybe be made right or declared right or whatever it may be before a holy God? How do I go from sinner to saint in God's eyes? And that is the topic of justification, okay? Everybody with me so far? Okay, so with that in mind, we're going to start with three different models. We're going to do a little church history, three different guys, and we're going to try to answer the question with each of these great thinkers. And by great thinkers, this one is not. He's very evil. We'll talk about that in a second. With each of these thinkers, we're going to ask whether or not justification is by grace alone, meaning is it completely a gift of God or is there some sense in which you merit it, you earn it, you put God in your debt? And we're going to ask, is it by faith alone? How do I get that grace? Do I do something to receive the grace of God? Or is it merely by trusting the fact that God will give it to me that I have it? That's the question we're going to try to answer. So let's look at these three figures here. These two guys are good guys. This is a bad guy. Let's start with the bad guy, Pelagius. All right? His name is Pelagius. Pelagius was a British monk. Uh, You're talking 300s, 400s, so somewhere in the early church. And what Pelagius taught... Was a pure works-based salvation in the worst sense of the, ter- in the worst sense of the term. To Pelagius, you literally merited the favor of God. You were not born totally depraved. You were not born totally sinful. To Pelagius, to Pelagius, if you simply would just be more obedient and try harder, you could have eternal life. That was Pelagius. Well, Pelagius, what about all these passages in the New Testament that talk about God's grace? God's grace to Pelagius, listen to his definition of God's grace. God gave you his rules so you would know what to do. That's Pelagius' view of grace. It was gracious for God to give you the Ten Commandments. It was gracious for God to give you the Old Testament. So if you'll just simply keep these laws in the New Testament, it's gracious for God to tell you who he is and what he desires. And if you will simply keep these things, you will have salvation. That's Pelagius. Pelagius believed in a pure, works-based salvation. Grace was that God told you what you should do and haven't left you in the dark. It's not that he helps you do it, though. You have to do it on your own effort. And so according to Pelagius, mankind is not born totally sinful and not born totally depraved. Mankind is born somewhat neutral, and you can kind of pick whether or not you're going to be obedient or not. All right? Does this sound very Christian to you? It's not. It's not. There are no Christian denominations today that hold to Pelagius' views. The only people that do are the cults, all right? Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, those who actually think that you can somehow earn and merit the favor of God. Islam, if you have more good deeds than bad, this kind of stuff, that's Pelagius' thinking. So with Pelagius, is salvation by grace alone? Certainly not, and he would agree with that. It is in the sense that he's given you God's law, but that's not really what we mean when we say grace. Uh, For me to be someone dead in my trespasses and sins and God says, hey, here's all this way you can live, that doesn't help me because I'm a corpse, all right? Is it by faith alone? No. Pretty simple. Pelagius, bad guy. We don't like Pelagius. Pelagianism means a true works-based salvation. Semi-Pelagianism means that it's by faith and works. So a lot of the cults and things like that are actually more semi-Pelagian. Okay, everybody with me so far on Pelagius? All right, if, if this was an elementary school class or something, I'd have us all boo every time I said Pelagius, all right, just to inculcate it into you. He's a bad guy. Now, there arose a hero to fight Pelagius, all right? And his name is Augustine, Aurelius Augustinus of Hippo, St. Augustine, all right? It's pronounced, by the way, Augustine. It's not St. Augustine. St. Augustine is what's growing in your front lawn, Okay? or a place in Florida. Or as R.C. Sproul says, remember, St. Augustine is in Florida, St. Augustine is in heaven, okay? So Augustine, who's Augustine? Augustine grew up with a mother who was a Christian. His father was not. Uh, He joined a cult when he was young uh, called Manichaeanism. Uh, He lived in uh, a lot of different places. He eventually became the the bishop of a town in North Africa called Hippo, like the animal. And uh, Augustine had a very... Uh, wh- he lived very wildly. I mean, he uh, would sleep around with a lot of different people. He had a child out of wedlock to a, uh, a woman who we don't know her name. Uh, there's, it's never written down anywhere, her name. I had a professor that used to just call her Roxanne. All right? So, Roxy... We don't know who he was married to. He had a son out of wedlock named Adeodatus, And and uh, he could not, he was brilliant, though. So he was a rhetoric professor, very brilliant, schooled in Greek philosophy and rhetoric and speaking and logic and all these kind of things, and uh, he could not get past the fact that there was evil in the world, and yet God was the God of the Christian Bible was said to be good. That was his big hang-up until one day he was radically converted uh, as he was, as he tells the story, he was sitting in a garden and he just felt overwhelmed by his sin. And he heard some kids on a swing singing a little children's song. You know how you might sing Ring Around the Rosie or something like that as a kid? And as the kids are singing, they're singing tola lege, tola lege, which in Latin means take up and read, take up and read. I don't know what song that is. I don't know how many kids sing about reading, but that's what he said they said. And uh, he took that as a sign from God to open the Bible and read it. And so he opened up to the book of Romans, and he read in the book of Romans, and he instantaneously that moment realized that Christianity was true, repented, trusted Christ, felt born again. St. Augustine is the biggest and most influential figure in church history outside of the New Testament. After the time of the apostles and the all 2,000 years of church history, he is the biggest influence, and there is not a close second. Catholics appeal to him, Protestants appeal to him. Uh, If you believe that you are saved by God's grace alone, that doesn't come from Augustine, that comes from the Bible, okay? But that was popularized by Augustine. Augustine was the opponent of Pelagius. Augustine said, no, Pelagius, you are completely depraved. You are in your own sin. You cannot choose God. God must open your heart. He must save you. You cannot earn it. He was called Dr. Grace, all right? Dr. Grace, that's St. Augustine. So we like Augustine because what he says about grace We like Augustine because what he says in some places about the unity of the church, he's a big proponent of the Trinity. He studied the Trinity for 19 years before he wrote De Trinitate, On the Trinity. All right? So he is quite a thinker. Uh, During the Reformation, both the Catholics and the Protestants are appealing to St. Augustine. That's how big he is. At the University of Wittenberg, where Martin Luther teached, their cry was not just Sola Scriptura, it was the Bible and Augustine. When you're quoted up there almost on the same level of Scripture, you know you've had a major influence. So Augustine, in fighting Pelagius, said, no, 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 no. The gift of God must be a 100% grace gift. We cannot earn it at all. God literally just gives it to us because of what Christ has done, okay? My son's middle name is Augustine after this figure, okay? So with Augustine, he gets so much right, but he's not perfect, All right? He's a good guy. He's on our team. You'll see him in heaven. He gets so much right, but he's not perfect. With Augustine, is salvation by grace alone? Do you merit it or is it a gift of God? It's a gift. Is it by grace alone? Yes. Amen. Exclamation point. But according to Augustine, it's not by faith alone. This is where he got it wrong. Okay? To Augustine, it is completely a gift, meaning you cannot earn it. All right? You're not in heaven because of your spiritual resume. But you have to do certain things to receive the grace. Think of grace almost as like a substance. All right? Almost as like, a, like water or air or some clump. I can hand you a clump of grace. Think of it like that. According to Augustine, the way you get God's grace, it is by grace alone and that you don't earn it, but the way that you get it is by doing certain church rituals and things like penance, so think of it this way, God puts a little bit of the grace in the waters of baptism as you're baptized by an, as an infant, which is what they were doing at this time in the 400s. Uh, or God puts a little bit of grace in communion when you take communion. God puts a little bit of grace when you do penance. And so though you don't earn this gift, you have to still do some things to receive that gift of grace. Do you see how the lines can easily become blurred here? When I say it's by grace alone, but you have to do these certain things to get the grace. Do you see how that can start to, start to sound a little too much like Pelagius? This is the official view of the Roman Catholic Church, okay? Is that it is by grace alone, but it's not received by faith alone. So a lot of times we don't understand this as we're engaging Catholics. We start to say, you're trying to earn it. You're, you need to just trust Christ. And they're saying, no, 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 I'm not trying to earn it. I believe it's by grace. I'm Augustinian. I'm Catholic. And then we have to explain, okay, how do you get the grace? So if God's going to give you a gift... Do you have to do something to get the gift, or do you simply receive it in the open hands of faith? Everybody with me so far on who these two figures are? Okay. Lastly, who holds the view here at Parkway? Uh, Martin Luther. Martin Luther, son of Hans Luther, who was a harsh father. He's a German in the late 1400s, early 1500s. And uh, Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk, all right? And Luther, and I won't go into a bunch of facts about his life, he's a very fascinating figure. If we ever teach church history here, we'll spend a lot of time on Martin Luther. But suffice it to say that Luther absolutely was racked with a guilty conscience in trying to earn the favor of God. Okay, He is the prototypical stress-yourself-out-trying-to-make-God-happy-with-you-and-love-you kind of person. I very much like Luther because I feel like a lot of his wrestles are my wrestles. So he would go to confession and confess his sins to a priest, and then he would immediately walk out of the confessional and think, did I really mean that? Was I really sorry enough? Well, if I was really sorry for my sins, why do I still keep doing them? Maybe I didn't really mean it. And he would go back in. The priest had to tell him, even though he was a priest, go away. Come back when you have something real to confess. All right? Uh, He would uh, constantly stress out, very introspective, uh, one time to punish his, himself for his own sins, to try to show God how sorry he was, slept outside all night in the snow with no clothes, and his monks had, other monks had to come drag him in and nurse him back to health. Uh, he said that if salvation could ever have been earned by monkery, it was I. If, if someone could ever earn salvation through being a monk, it was I. So he is a guy that actu- absolutely realizes that God is holy, God is wrathful. He demands that we be perfect, but we're born Broken and sinful. Think about how crazy that is. God demands that you're born, that you, be, that you would be perfect, yet you're born completely dead to God and in sin, and then he damns you forever because you can't actually obtain this perfection. I mean, Luther's very logical here. And so he hated the idea of the righteousness of God. He hated the idea that God was righteous because in his mind, the main focus of that was that if God is righteous, he must damn sinners, he must dispense righteousness. He must. Uh, bring the hurt on people who deserve it until one day he was reading in Romans and he read about how the just shall live by faith and that God justifies by his faith and in that moment he realized wait a second God's righteousness isn't just the fact that God himself is righteous and damn sinners it's that God sees those who have faith in Christ as righteous and he said at that moment it felt like he had been born again and entered the gates of heaven itself Martin Luther, following Augustine, said that salvation is by grace alone. Yes. And here you get a distinctly Protestant doctrine. what is one of the biggest thing that separates Protestants, like Baptists, from Catholics? And he said that it is by faith alone. That it is by faith alone. OK? So not only do we not earn it, it is a gift. Christ has to purchase all of our salvation. It's not like Christ does 90% on the cross and we do 10%. Christ does 100%. But now how do I get that justification? How do I get God to see me as righteous? It's simply by faith, salvific faith, is simply where you stop calling God a liar. It's simply where you stop calling God a liar. When Jesus died for your sins and God wants to save you, and if you'll simply ask Jesus to save you that he will, It's where you simply believe that. God's not a liar. He's not trying to trick you. He's not asking you to jump through hoops. It's by simple repentance and faith in Christ, where we realize we have fallen short of a holy God that demands that we should be perfect, so we fall on our face before King Jesus, and we say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he does. And he does. Okay? So we believe that justification is by grace alone, that we do not merit it or earn it, And the way we receive it is through faith alone. It's not through doing rituals. It's not through doing good works. It's not through uh, doing churchy kind of things. It's by simple repentance and faith. Now, this, if you understand this, will set you free. If you understand that not only that there is a God who loves you, who sent his son to die on the cross and be raised, but by simple faith in him you can become a child of the king. He will see you as perfect. He will see you as spotless. He will see you as 100% justified. And not only will God be with you in this life, but he'll be with you in the age to come. It takes away anxiety. It takes away performance. It takes away striving to earn God's favor. Okay? That justification is by grace alone through faith alone. Everybody with me so far on this? Okay, So I wanted to give you just kind of a, a quick overview of church history just on this, this major, these major differences here. So Pelagius, his views are really only held by cults and other religions that are not Christianity today. Augustine's view is held by Roman Catholicism, where it is by grace alone. You don't earn it, but you have to do things to get the grace. Baptism, mass, penance, extreme unction, etc. And then in a Protestant view, so this is everybody else, all right? So this is going to be Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, uh, all kinds of stuff, uh, This, uh, even Episcopalian, that's going to be Luther's view that it's by grace alone through faith alone. Everybody good on that? Oh, okay, some, some, some questions in the middle. Let's go for it. it? They're traditionally going to be here if you believe. So, well, it depends. There are, uh, okay, I want to say this without getting in trouble. Okay, so, uh, Methodist officially would be this view that it is by grace alone through faith alone, but that you can stop having faith, and you can reject Christ and you can lose your salvation with certain Methodist groups, not all of them actually, but most of them okay uh, when it comes to Church of Christ, it depends because there's not a set creed with the churches of christ they 're very independent of one another. Uh, you will see them somewhat across the board. most of them officially would say. Uh, It depends. I've seen all, I've actually, so I was actually raised Church of Christ. I actually didn't get saved until I was 18. It was actually at a non-Church of Christ church, but that doesn't mean they're obviously saved Church of Christ people. Uh, But I've seen all three of these, to be honest with you. I've been to some where I really do think it is some type of workspace stuff. You keep doing good things, and if you don't do enough good things, it's not just Christ's gift, you actually will be damned. I've seen others that are kind of Augustinian. It is by God's grace alone, but you're going to get God's grace by going through the waters of baptism, or whatever it might be. And then I've seen others. There are others that are more Lutheran in the sense that they do believe it is by grace alone through faith alone. So it varies with them. Uh, They would not like the classification I just gave them, uh, but I think that's probably true. At least that's been my experience. uh, Yeah, one more question. Yes. So uh, what's very interesting here is Luther is not completely consistent in his thinking. His question is do Lutherans believe that sacraments, meaning communion or the Eucharist uh, and baptism and these kind of things are a means of saving grace. Uh, Luther's not completely consistent here. Luther does think that. And a lot of uh, Lutherans today would say that as well. So they would believe that baptism is a sense that does wash away original sin. They do believe that in communion, uh, Christ's literal body and blood is among the elements, what's called consubstantiation. We don't have time to get into all that. Suffice it to say that uh, Luther believes in the justification by faith alone, but he's still very Catholic. He's still coming out of a Roman Catholic background. So give him some grace. I remember one time asking a professor, I said, wait a second, Luther believes in infant baptismal regeneration that when you sprinkle an infant, which we wouldn't even consider baptism, but when you sprinkle an infant, that his original sin is washed away, but somehow he believes that justification is by faith alone. What's he doing? And the professor said, Zach, your faith is always better than your theology, (laughs) which is very comforting to me. Your faith is always better than your theology. It's the same way with Luther. Luther's theology is not perfect. There are some places where there seems to be some contradiction. But in Luther's mind, he separates regeneration very far from justification, which is why he can hold those two different views. Anyway, you don't have to know all that. There's a lot of uh, terms and words and stuff there. I just want to make sure you understand this scheme. Cult, Catholic, Protestant. That's what I want you to see, okay? All right. Pelagius, bad guy. Augustine, great guy. Still off, though. Still very Catholic in his uh, view of soteriology. And then Luther, and Luther's not even perfect here either, but just to give you some broad, uh, uh, just a broad paradigm. Okay, let me erase this, and then we're going to draw a little chart on the board. What is the difference between a Catholic and a Protestant view of justification? And then I'm going to show you a bunch of text with, and I I hate to just reveal all my cards here, but I'm not Catholic. (laughs) I'm a Protestant, which is why I work at this church. Uh, So, but I want to uh, show you the difference between these two systems, just so you better understand, all right? Just so you better understand. So, on the one side, let's have Catholic. The word Catholic, by the way, just means universal. So, sometimes in the creeds, you'll hear even the Reformers say that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, John Calvin is not agreeing with capital C Roman Catholic Church. He means the universal church. So the term Catholic, small c, just means universal. Big C means Roman Catholic like the denomination. Protestant. Okay. Let's talk about the differences of justification, how one is made or declared right before God within a Catholic and a Protestant view. Okay? Number one. Put some lines under here. Number one. With a Catholic, justification is imparted. And with a Protestant, it is imputed. What does that mean? In a Catholic view of justification, God actually makes you righteous. He actually makes you righteous. To say it a stronger way for a lot of Protestants, there's no distinction in Catholic thinking between justification and sanctification. They're the same thing, okay? So in Roman Catholic theology, God justifies the just. You become more and more righteous in Roman Catholicism the more you live catholically. So let's think of it this way. Let me give you a little example. Let's say God demands that you have 100 good points to be saved, okay? You might get 10 of those points at your infant baptism. When you take Mass, you might get five more points. When you do penance, you might get two more points. And what happens if you die with 80 points, well, you then go to purgatory, where you burn off the other 20. Okay? I'm not meaning, to be, I'm not meaning to, to, to be trite or something like that. That's the view. You actually become more and more justified as time goes on. Okay? Because it's something that you're actually becoming. In the Protestant view, when it's imputed, here's simply what this word means, that God reckons it to your account. God reckons it to your account. Okay? God reckons your sin to Christ's account on the cross. He reckons Christ's righteousness to your account. And this is specifically in uh, Luther had a right-hand man, kind of the robin to his Batman named Melanchthon. This is his view. He's really the one that popularized Luther's view. So the big difference here is that in Catholic, in Catholic thinking, that righteousness is imparted, it's given to you, and it's something you become intrinsically. And in Protestant thinking, it's something that's reckoned to you. God sees you as righteous even though you're still broken and sinful. Anybody in here not ever sinned? then how can God see you as 100% righteous? Well, because it's, it has to do with how he views you. He imputes Christ's righteousness to you in a Protestant system. Christ is perfect. He is sinless. And God sees you. The Father never sees you without his Jesus glasses on, to say it that way, okay? And when he sees you with his Jesus glasses on, guess what? He sees you as loved, spotless, pure, perfect, sinless, adopted son. Although Christ is a son by nature. But you're an adopted son, Okay? Another difference is that in Catholic thinking, justification is progressive. Progressive. And in Protestant thinking, it's instantaneous. Forget the spelling. Again, you guys know my view on spelling. It's conventional. I don't think it's a real thing. How do I know? Because you get text messages every day that are misspelled, and you know exactly what they're saying. Okay? It only matters if it's confused with another actual word. Anyway, so I won't get into that. That's a, that's a uh, soapbox. Okay, progressive. So in Catholic thinking, you're justific- you become more and more justified over time. In Protestant thinking, it's instantaneous. Let me give you an example. Let's say you are Roman Catholic and you're going to get a PhD in God's School of Justification, all right, to do it that way. You enroll, and as you take classes, you become more and more educated. You take classes, you're more educated. You jump up to the next level. You take more classes, you're more educated. You jump up to the next level. And by the time you're done, they award you a Ph.D. You've grown in your knowledge over time, and at the end, they award you a Ph.D. And if you haven't quite met the requirements of a Ph.D., you can actually receive some of those from Mary and the saints. You can cheat off their test a little bit, and you can get that Ph.D. Everybody with me so far? In Protestant thinking, it's instantaneous. So here's how it works out. I show up to the university, and on day one, They give me my degree. They give me a PhD. They say, there's been another student here before, and he was the best student we've ever had, and his name is Jesus. And he earned a PhD, and because you're associated with him through faith, we see you now as doctor. You have all the rights and privileges thereunto appertaining, or whatever it is they say when you graduate. So from day one, you're doctor, and you're seen as doctor. It's an actual doctorate. You can teach classes. All of it is credited to your account. And classes start the very next day, and they go for the rest of your life. You're already declared to be a doctor in this scenario, and then you over time start to actually become what you've already been declared to be. That's what sanctification is. Sanctification is simply where we're becoming what God has already declared us to be. God has already slammed down the gavel and said that you're perfect in Christ, and now we get to learn to be what we are. We get to learn to be what we are. Let me give you another difference here. <clears throat> in Catholic thing we already talked about it being something you actually become versus something you're declared to be. In Catholic thinking, it's intrinsic. Intrinsic. And in Protestant thinking, it's extrinsic. Which I think is a word. I am about not inventing words, even though I don't care about spelling. In Catholic thinking, as you partake in more means of grace, as you partake in the Mass every week, as you uh, do penance, as you do Spirit-inspired acts of love and these kind of things, you actually become more righteous you actually become more justified. It's intrinsic, all right? You become more worthy of God's love because you actually have grown in their thinking. In Protestant thinking, justification is extrinsic. It comes from Christ. If you start trying to talking about internal justification to the reformers, it will make them see red, all right? They hate that. It is extrinsic. It is outside of you. It's called the iustitia aliena, the alien righteousness of God, meaning it comes from outside of you. The righteousness you have is not something that's inside of you and intrinsic to you. It's something that comes from Christ. It comes from someone outside of you who is Christ and is reckoned to your account. Okay? Another difference is, I'm gonna have to erase some of these by the way, just so I don't have to write lower on the board. In Catholic thinking, it's greater in some than in others. Greater in some. It's equal in Protestant thinking. Your justification, your declaration of being made uh, being right, seen as righteous before God. In Catholic thinking, sorry I wrote so small, some people are more justified than other people. Not more just sanctified because, again, remember those are the same thing to them. Or at least they're merged. Maybe not exactly the same, but they're merged. In Protestant thinking, our justification is equal. So let me say it this way. Anybody in here more in Jesus than somebody else? Anybody in here more forgiven than 100? So think about it. If you're forgiven 100% and someone else is forgiven 100%, how can there be more? You're equally forgiven. If you're seen as 100% righteous in Christ and someone else is seen as 100% righteous in Christ, how could it be more? It's equal. So in the reformers thinking, its justification is equal in everybody. Now, our sanctification can be different. Some people have grown more in their faith. But if they're a believer in Christ, they've repented of their sins and trusted Christ, they're, we're all seen as equally justified. We're equally adopted. We're equally uh, righteous. We're equally forgiven. What's different is how much we actually live in that freedom we've been given. But in Catholic thinking, it is greater in some than in others. And lastly, in Catholic thinking, it's by faith plus sacraments plus acts of love. And in Protestant thinking, it is, and this is what gets Luther in trouble. Well, a lot of things get him in trouble. He said the Pope was as fit to, play, uh, to judge spiritual matters as a donkey was to play the harp. So that gets him in trouble too. It's by faith alone. Okay. It's a free gift. Christ has purchased it. I can do nothing. How do I receive this free gift? How can I get that gift applied to my account? In Protestant thinking, it's simply by asking Christ for mercy. In Catholic thinking... It's through several things, right? Again, uh, grace is almost seen as like a substance that you go get. I get a little bit of it when I have faith. I get a little bit of it through the sacraments, and they have a lot more sacraments than we do. We have two sacraments in a Protestant church, baptism and communion. We prefer a lot of times as Baptists to call them ordinances because it makes us uncomfortable, but sacraments is a fine word. And then uh, with uh, Catholic thinking, there's also acts of love give you some of this uh, justifying slash sanctifying righteousness. Everybody with me so far? This is a lot of info. We're doing a lot of theology today. Now, let's get into the biblical text, all right? I want to read you one passage real quick uh, from St. Thomas Aquinas, who is after Augustine, probably the biggest Catholic theologian, most influential Catholic theologian. And uh, he said this. This was a popular slogan during certain nominalists in the Middle Ages, and here's what they viewed uh, what you would have to do to be saved. You ready? Here's the quote. God does not deny grace to the man who does what is in him. God does not deny grace to the man who does what is in him. So in a lot of medieval thinking, your job is to do the best you can. The requirement that God has of you is to do the best you can, and then he will make up for it. He will then, because you've done the best you can, that's the requirement you had to meet. When you do that, he then will give you righteousness and save you. Here's the problem with that quote and that thinking. The Bible says that we are dead. The best we can do is that we are just dead. We don't do anything. If anything, we're active in following the enemy. That We belong to the prince of the power of the air. All right? The spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience. That we are by nature children of wrath, says the Bible. So we can't, just ha- we can't hope that God's mercy is dependent on us doing what's in us. Because what's in us is only evil. That's a huge problem with that kind of thinking. That's one of the things that incited Luther to say, wait a second, this is messed up. And so I want to read some passages here about justification. So now let's get into the Bible. We did half of our time in church history. Now let's jump into the scripture. I want to read these passages, and here's what I want you thinking about. As I read these passages, does it sound more like the Protestant view, where we're talking about things being reckoned to your account, where it talks about you being 100% forgiven and, may, and seen as righteous right away, etc., or does it sound more like the Catholic account? Does it sound like it's by faith alone, or does it sound like it's by faith plus sacraments plus you know, acts of love, et cetera, okay? So keep these two paradigms, the Catholic and the Protestant paradigm in your mind as we read these passages and see which one it sounds more like. You with me? Trust me, I've stacked the deck in my favor, but that's because I think it's right, okay. (laughs) Romans 4, three through eight. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted, reckoned, credited, imputed, that's the idea. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trust in him who justifies who? The ungodly. God does not justify the just, as in Roman Catholic thinking. God justifies the ungodly. God sees us as something we're not. He sees us as what Christ was. Justify the ungodly. His faith is counted, there is the reckoning language again, as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Romans 10, 8 through 11. We're going to read a lot of scripture together. Let me say this. If you're someone like me who constantly feels like God is frustrated with you, maybe you're saved, but he's always kind of just wishing you would do better. He's kind of got his arms crossed. and He's like, come on, you can do better. Let these texts wash over you. You cannot do better than Christ has done. He has done it all on your behalf. Your strivings can cease. Faith is resting. It's resting. Let's look at these again. Sorry, Romans 10. 8 through 11. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. Not by doing all these other external works, but simply by believing the heart one is, quote, justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Romans 3, 21 through 28. But now the righteousness of God. This is the passage, by the way, in uh, Romans 3, I think, that actually was the one Luther was converted by reading. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith." This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Ephesians 2, 8-9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Acts 10, 44 through 45. Why Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The reason I mention this one is, this is in Acts 10 where Paul is preaching to Cornelius' household and they don't do anything. They don't do any religious ritual. He simply preaches about Jesus and the Holy Spirit falls on them. Simple hearing through faith, okay? And the believers uh, from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Acts 15, 8 through 9. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Philippians 3, 8 through 9. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law... But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Galatians 3, 5 through 6. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Simple hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In those passages, you see some repeated themes. That it is by God's grace alone we do not earn it. It is received through faith alone. That's why Paul uses in Romans 4 the analogy of Abraham. Abraham believed God and God saw Abraham as righteous even before Abraham got circumcised. Even before he did all these acts of faith God asked him to do. All right, Uh, you see the fact that there's a lot of reckoning language, that God counts us to be something that we're not. So let's be really clear. If you just, okay, all right, now now I've got to erase this, and I've got to start preaching, okay? I was just going to try to teach, but now I'm getting fired up. And so now we're going to preach. Listen, this is, here's how Calvin describes justification, which I think is really helpful. Imagine this circle is Jesus, Okay? Imagine that circles Jesus. What are some things that are true of Jesus? Well, he's sinless. Okay? He's perfect. He's loved by God. He's righteous. And we could just keep going. All right? We could just keep going. When a Christian, or when somebody puts their faith in Christ, here's a little person, and he's sad because he's lost. All right? When he puts his faith in Christ he dies, he exists no longer, and he moves over here, and he is simply in Christ. And now he's happy. He is in Christ, and what is true of that circle is true of him. He is seen by the Father as sinless. He is seen as perfect. He is loved. He is righteous. This is why Paul will constantly say the phrase, in Christ. In Christ, we have this. In Christ, you're this. In Christ, you're this. We don't exist anymore. There's only Christ. So listen, this is very important. When we look at ourselves and we see how we're doing, right? Before our head hits the pillow at night, I kind of think through the day. And when I look at myself and I think, how am I doing? I have a tendency to think, well, I could do better here and I could do better here and I could do better here. In God's eyes, I'm doing just fine because Christ is doing just fine. There is no me. There's just Christ. You are not allowed to look at yourself in a way that God does not look at you. What happens, the reason we get depressed and the reason we get down and the reason we get anxious and the reason we try to strive and try to earn God's favor is because we are trying to approach the Father without the Son. We are trying to say, God, I'm standing before you. I'm doing an okay job, but not a perfect job. We don't get to do that. It's only ever this. This is only the question. So if you're ever wrestling with, does God love me? Does he care for me? Do I need to work harder? Any of that. Here's simply the question you have to think. What does the Father think of Jesus? That's the only question you have to ask. Because guess what? If the Father loves Jesus and you're in Christ, you're loved too. And if the Father sees Jesus as perfect, you're in Christ and you're seen as perfect too. And if the Father sees Jesus as sinless, you are seen as sinless. A lot of us as Christians think that we're Christians with an asterisk. Yes, God has saved me, but really I know about all these things in my past that nobody else knows. God has separated your sins as far as the east is from the west. Understanding this difference of what it means to be in Christ is the difference between walking in joy and freedom and not. We look at ourselves apart from Christ and we try to see how we're doing and then we're discouraged and we feel like God's frustrated. Stop doing that. All that matters is how God sees Christ if you're in Christ. That's everything. The old man has died. We now live in Christ. That I have been crucified with Christ is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live by fa- uh, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Galatians 2.20. This is, this, is, this is the reality of the Christian life. This is so hard just to rest in. Listen, it's done. It's done. If you're a Christian, it's done. Mission accomplished. The goal has been won. You can rest. Does God still have things for us to do? Yes. Do we still grow in holiness? Yes. In our sanctification, but not in the way God views us. Justification for God is a legal declaration. God is a judge, and he has slammed down the gavel, and he has said, not guilty, clean, innocent, perfect, beautiful, That's what it means to be justified. Listen, you will grow in your sanctification the more you come back to the reality of your justification. You'll actually grow in holiness and these kind of things the more you rest in what Christ has done for you. Okay? Everybody good? Okay. Let's start the altar call and we'll play the music. I'm just kidding. Uh, Yes, real quick. Yeah, I, I think Yeah. That's his question, and just in case you didn't hear it was, is there a sense in which God gets disappointed in us? And the reason that this is an important question is because I think a lot of us would say, okay, yeah, I think God saves me. He has to, right? He's bound himself by his word. So he, he kind of has to, even though he kind of, you know, might have buyer's remorse sometimes and these kind of things. Uh, I think it's important to realize here's a good way maybe that I can pitch it. Uh, Sometimes people ask the same question of why do I need to repent of my sin if God's already forgiven me? So I'll I'll do it that way. I'll I'll approach it that way. If I get into a fight with my wife, are we still married? Man, I sure hope so, right? We're still married, right? Even though we've gotten into a fight, we still love each other. We still want to be married. We're still together. What I do, though, is I go to her and I repent, not because we became divorced in that meantime and we needed to be remarried, but because there is a rift in the relationship, And so though I come to her, and guess what I do to my wife? In a sense, I repent. I say, greatest Katie, I have failed thee, right? And I repent. And what does that do? That removes that stumbling block so we can continue growing in our relationship. I think it's the same kind of thing. The Bible will talk about things like grieving the Spirit and these kind of things. So I think that there is a sense in which sin does put a hindrance in your relationship with God. But your ultimate relationship, your marriage, if you will, the fact that you're adopted as a son or daughter of God, that doesn't change. When my son does something that's disobedient, I wish he hadn't done that thing. But I don't regret for a second that he's my son. And I'm still overwhelmingly in love with him. And when I have to discipline him, you know, your parents would say this as a kid and you thought it was so stupid when they said, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And I'm like, you don't know what a belt feels like, you know. (laughs) But, man, it's so true because I love that little squishy big-headed baby, all right. I think it's the same way with God. I think there is a sense in which you can grieve the spirit. Sin in your life can hinder your relationship with God. We are commanded to walk in righteousness because we're in Christ. This is the fuel for why we grow in sanctification. But that ultimate love, that ultimate relationship does not change. Okay, now with all that in mind, let's get into the sticky book of James. All right? Martin Luther did not like James. He called it the a right straw epistle, the epistle of straw. He didn't like it. He thought James didn't understand the gospel, <laughs> which is ridiculous because you go to the Bible to find what the gospel is. So I think Luther was mis, uh, misunderstood, James. But let's read these passages because these are two passages that come up when you talk about being justified by faith alone that stress people out. I'm going to just read both of them and then we'll explain them. James 2, 14 through 20. For what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace. Be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? By the way, this is one of the reasons why we also care for people's practical needs, not just their spiritual needs. You don't really love them if you're also not willing to provide for their practical needs. Verse 17. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith uh, apart from works is useless? And then look at James two twenty four. What looks like to be a contradiction, but it's not, I'll tell you why in a second. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. How about that passage? Anybody have that embroidered on a pillow in your house? No? <laughs> Here's what's going on in these passages. Whereas Luther kind of misunderstood what was going on with James, here's what's really important. This is not a contradiction. They're addressing different audiences. They're talking about different things. When Paul says you're justified by faith alone, he's addressing... Judaizers. He's addressing those that think that to be a part of the Christian faith, you have to follow Old Testament Mosaic law. You have to be circumcised. You have to keep certain food laws. You have to keep Sabbath days and holy days. You have to do all these works of Old Testament Mosaic law to be saved. And he is saying, no, no, no. What makes you as someone who's in Christ is faith, whether you're Jew and Gentile, all right? Not by keeping these different works. That's the audience he's addressing. Everybody with me on that? So if someone comes up to him as he's writing to Jewish and Gentile audiences and he's trying to say, you don't have to become a Jew to be a Christian. You become a Christian by faith in Christ. That's what he's trying to say. James, if you'll look in this context, is dealing with a totally different kind of person. James is dealing with the kind of person that prayed the prayer when they were six, that walked an aisle, that has not seen any life change, that has not seen a kind of faith that's transformed their life. They have simply have mental, cognitive faith about God. And he says, you know what? The demons have that. I'll often meet lost people, and they say, well, I believe in God. I'm like, man, that's great. So does the devil. What's the difference then? And so what James is addressing in that passage is someone who says, I have faith. I'm a Christian. And he says, you have the same kind of faith the demons have. It's a cognitive faith. It's a mental faith. It's not real faith. How do I know? Because it hasn't transformed your life. So to quote Martin Luther, uh, man is saved by faith alone, but not the kind of faith that is alone. We're saved by a transforming faith. We're saved by a faith that links us to the Holy Spirit who then empowers us to do good works. Or as John Calvin said, that you are saved, what does he say? He says, you're not saved by works, but neither are you saved without them. And by that, he means not that you earn salvation, that you go do these things. What he's trying to say is your faith has to be a faith with legs on it. It has to be a faith that changes things. We're in the South, and so I can't just go up to somebody and say, are you a Christian? Because they'll say, yes, I'm a Texan, right? That's what we do. We go to church, we go eat chicken at home, and we watch the Cowboys game. That's what Christianity is, they would say. When I'm trying to figure out whether or not somebody's a Christian, here's the question I'll ask them. What spirit-inspired evidences in your life can you show me to show me that you've been converted and transformed? That's the question I want to know. So let's be extremely clear. It is by simple repentance and faith with no works that you come before Christ and are accepted. Okay? As I, I think I quoted this recently, but... Uh, Uh, Spurgeon said that when a man comes before God for salvation he must not only repent of his bad deeds but of his good ones we come before him with empty hands of faith resting just in Christ and that's how we're justified if we have the spirit though and God gives us his spirit he regenerates our hearts he does these things it will produce a life change it will produce a life change so here's my fear my fear is that you start to say oh man I don't think there's a lot of good things in my life maybe I should try harder and do more good works no Pelagian we don't want to do that What you do is you go back to the cross. You love Jesus, you worship Jesus, you pray to Jesus, you focus on Jesus, you realize what he has done, and that is what transforms you. That's what gives you the motivation. The more I try to not sin, the more I sin. Because my focus is on not Christ as my Savior, but me. You can make not sinning your Savior. The more I just rest in the love of Christ, I find myself naturally growing, even though I'm not trying. Paul will constantly do what's called an uh, an imperative. What is it? I'm sorry. It is an indicative and imperative. What that means is he says something that's true, and therefore he gives you the command. Because you're in Christ, go do this. Because you've been forgiven, live like this. Because the old man is dead, do this. Because this is the case, put on Christ. But what we do in that command and that imperative is fueled by what's already true of us in Christ. I mean, the difference between getting this and not is... It's not, I do good deeds and therefore I'm saved. It's I'm saved, therefore I do good deeds. The good deeds will necessarily come if you have true saving faith. That's what James is saying. If you have the kind of faith the demons have where your life doesn't look any different than the rest of the world, that's not saving faith. But that simple saving faith will produce a life change in you. Now, I don't mean... Listen, some of us were saved from radically depraved backgrounds where we were just, you know, on drugs and, you know, living licentiously and all these kind of things. But a lot of us were saved out of more religious backgrounds. That's how my conversion was. So I'm not saying that you have to... There has to be this big switch between I was doing heroin one day and then I wasn't the next. But there is a life change that's produced even if your conversion is very subtle, if you want to say it that way. There is something that's different. Though I was very righteous in the world's eyes, I didn't know Christ. And when I actually met Christ, all of a sudden I loved him. I didn't even know why. I was like, oh my gosh, I just love Jesus so much. And I believe he died for me. And I used to sit in my room as an 18-year-old and listen to worship songs and cry after I started going to this church. And I'm like, what is happening to me? Conversion. All right? God was changing my heart. That's a difference. I didn't curse before. I don't curse after. But the reason I don't do it or whatever, has changed completely. The first was I was trying to be a good person and merit God's favor. The second was I just love Jesus and I want to obey Jesus. Or as one pastor says, there's not good people and bad people in Christianity, there's bad people and Jesus. And every one of us has to fit into one of those two categories. I recommend we all be in the Jesus category. All right? Okay, that is a lot of theology. Let's spend the last, I don't know, five, ten minutes talking about a major theme in the New Testament. Everything I've just said... It's true, at least I sure hope it is. I think it is. Uh, But there is a focus in the New Testament that when we talk about justification is often missed. Okay, here's the focus. We're asking the question constantly, how can a sinner be made right or be seen as right in front of a holy God? That's the question we're always asking. Everybody with me? There is another big question that is being asked in the New Testament when it comes to this issue of justification, and here's the question. How can Gentiles, non-Jews, get into a Jewish faith without becoming Jewish okay so I just want to be careful as we talk about justification a lot of times we can just focus on this individualistic how can I may be right before God and that's an important question yes and amen to that question the reason I want to bring that up is because that's a big area of struggle for American Christians I heard somebody say that Pelagius was the patron saint of America and I thought that was a pretty smart quote because he's right we don't want that to be the case but with that in mind, I want you to realize that the question that Paul is addressing when he's most often talking about justification by faith is not just how can a sinner may be right before God. It's how can Gentiles get into the Christian faith. Okay? The issue going on in the book of Acts, the issue going on in Galatians, the issue going on on Romans, the issue in Ephesians with the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, there's a constant emphasis in the New Testament of this division between Jew and Gentile if you're a Jew, you think that for somebody to worship the one true God of Israel, they need to do what they did in the Old Testament. They need to be circumcised. They need to follow Mosaic law. They need to keep cash root and food laws. They need to do all these things. And so when somebody comes like the Apostle Paul and says, Christ has fulfilled it all, it's just by faith in Christ that you get into worship the God of Israel. That freaks out the Jews. Everybody with me so far? So what Paul is going to emphasize in this talk of justification is he's going to talk about how do Gentiles get into a Jewish faith? How do Gentiles get into a Jewish faith? And his answer is not by following works of the law. It's by simple faith in Christ. What is the badge that you are a Christian? Faith in Jesus. Not circumcision, not food law, not all these Old Testament mosaic laws that Christ has already fulfilled. It's by faith in Christ. Everybody with me? Um. Think about... Okay, well, let's just, let's just read some of these passages. I want you to see the Jew-Gentile dynamic here. Okay, when Paul's talking about justification, I want you to see the Jew-Gentile dynamic here. I want you to see it's not just about being made right before God. It's what must one do to be within the covenant community of the people of God. Galatians 2, 15 through 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Let me pause right there real quick. What does works of the law mean in that passage? Somebody tell me. Old Testament Mosaic law. Sometimes we have a tendency to think of works of the law means something like good churchy deeds, right? Like, so if you say, Zach, name some works of the law. I'll think, well, you know, reading my Bible and going to church and taking communion and witnessing to my neighbor. Sometimes the Bible uses the word works for that, like in Ephesians 2. That is, that is a true concept. Most of the times when this phrase is used, in Greek it's ergonomu, works of the law, it means mosaic law. Okay? Mosaic law. That's what he's addressing in this passage. Uh, So that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, meaning mosaic works, no one will be justified. Romans 3, 28 through 29. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Again, mosaic law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? You see the Jew-Gentile dynamic here. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Galatians 3, 7-9. through Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Right Again, the Jews prided themselves of being sons of Abraham. It's those who have faith that are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Galatians 3, 25 through 29. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We're going to talk about that next week. Do we have to follow Old Testament Mosaic law? If so, which ones? We're going to talk about that. Verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is, uh, there is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. Acts 15, 19 through 20. Therefore... This is when they get together, and Jeff, if you want to go ahead and come on up here, you can. This is when they get together uh, in the book of Acts, because Gentiles are getting into the church, and their question is this, what do the Gentiles have to keep? If they're going to be hanging out with Jews, what rules in the Old Testament do the Gentiles have to keep? And here's their decision. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual morality and from what has been strangled and from blood, specifically the things that are going to be offensive to their Jewish neighbors. But they don't have to keep the Mosaic law. That's their decision. Okay? So I say all of that. We don't have enough time to go into that because I started getting into preacher mode with Luther and these kind of things. Suffice it to say that there is a huge emphasis. Just keep this in mind. Keep in mind the original context when you read the New Testament. Paul is not like Martin Luther, who just has a bad conscience asking how he can be saved before God. He's trying to figure out how can Gentiles be a part of the people of God without becoming Jews. And his answer is by faith. His answer is by faith. Abraham was a Gentile before he was a Jew. Right? He's a moon-worshipping pagan from the town of Ur. And God takes him out and says, hey, you're going to be my guy and these are going to be my people. And that's kind of Paul's point. Abraham was actually a Gentile and he put his faith in God and he was made a son of God. Right. so Jeff Jeff will now come and say smarter things than I have said alright let's, let's take some time for questions we've got about 15 minutes